Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. It's March 29th, inflation is raging, yields are rising, and credit returns are floating down a river of red. I'm Rob Schiffman, and welcome to this month's Bloomberg Intelligence Credit Chat Podcast. Today, we've assembled a plenitude of analysts across sectors and regions to discuss the risk and reward potential of varied pandemic outcomes, rising commodity prices, and exposure to war in Ukraine. Uh, BI's best are with us, including Jeroen Julius, Spencer Cutter, Jody Lurie, and Mike Holland, we're going to take a deeper dive into European banks, energy markets, travel and leisure, and healthcare. So we are chock full of stuff to talk about. Why don't we start off with JJ in Europe? Welcome, JJ. Hi, Rob. Thank you very much for having me uh, on the show. Uh, always a pleasure. So obviously, um, you know, the thing that uh, other than uh, talking about the Oscar awards, you know, the thing that's on everybody's mind is this war in Ukraine mm-hmm. and in particular uh, bank exposure. You know, it's, it's so hard. Some of these banks, you know, to outsiders are black boxes. Could, could you just give us a, a sense of like who has exposure? How mm-hmm. big is it? Um, you know, and what the, what the impact we've seen so far on European bank bonds and some of those sort of potholes we need to be wary of in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the banks that are uh, the most exposed uh, to Russia are the ones that have on the ground uh, operations, uh, and these are Raiffeisen, especially that's the Austrian bank, uh, but also Société Générale and Unicredit. Um, and in addition to that, you've got lots of banks that have cross-border exposure to Russia and to Belarus and Ukraine to a lesser extent. Uh, but it is those three that I just mentioned, Raiffeisen, and Societe Generale and Unicredit, that um, would be the most impacted in a worst-case scenario. Uh, and of course, the, the worst-case scenario uh, would be a total write-off of their of their uh, equity, of their, their presence uh, in Russia, as well as the write-off of any intra-group funding, although that is fairly modest uh, uh, or non-existent because a lot of those operations are locally funded, so funded by uh, by deposits. Um, well, in a sense of magnitude, how big, like in that worst-case scenario, how, how big are those exposures? So for Raiffeisen, it is quite significant because Russia has always been uh, the largest contributor to its earnings. Uh, something like between 30 and 40 percent of its earnings came from Russia, so that's uh, you know that's that's significant. Uh, for Société Générale and Unicredit, the uh, exposures are uh, smaller, uh, and they have come out and uh, quantified the impact. I think Société Générale highlighted something like 50 basis points uh, hits to its uh, CT1 ratio, so its capital ratio, its core capital ratio. In a worst case scenario, for Unicredit, I think it was a bit higher. Uh, 200 basis points, but you know, it does depend a little bit on how you define the worst case scenario. So it's not necessarily apples for apples if you compare and contrast those two uh, uh, disclosures. Uh, Raiffeisen is also considering whether to uh, exit uh, Russia. 
uh, I don't think it's, it's taken a formal decision yet, but that you know that would be a, a big deal. So uh, of, the, of those three, uh, Raiffeisen is the most impact simply because it's a smaller bank and relative to its smaller size, Russia is much uh, much more significant. Uh, Sogjan and, and Unicredit are much more diversified banks. You know, uh, Russia is a, is, a, is a minor, fairly minor part of its of, of, the, of those banks' businesses. Um, and what about sort of second and third? derivative impacts like for for the big banks you know the deutsches and you know the cs's um you know when during the financial crisis right it, it wasn't necessarily like direct exposure to mm-hmm. cds uh for many but it was those second and third derivatives like is is there you know is there this worry that um you know the crisis could could grow dramatically larger or is it just that these balance sheets are in such different places these days that overall risks to European banks are small? Uh, well, of course, the first thing to say is that today we've seen some, uh, you know, hopefully positive uh, headlines coming out of the, the negotiations uh, in, in Turkey. So, uh, you know, let, let's hope that, that uh, those positive headlines do uh, uh, translate into a very you know, more positive developments on the ground. Um, but uh, but you know assuming um, that that's not necessarily the case, assuming that uh, you know we are still stuck in this crisis, you're absolutely right. There are a number of uh, second order effects, and you know the first one clearly is on the impact that this whole situation may have on the operating environment in Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, there are a number of banks that do not have any direct exposure to Russia or any underground exposure to, to, to Russia, but, you know, have a large presence in Central and Eastern Europe. For instance, banks like KBC and Erste um, and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the other banks, um, you know, that aren't necessarily... Uh, Present in Russia could be could be impacted uh, by the by the hits to the, uh, the, the those economies and uh, and the, you know, so so that, that that would be the first um, second order impact. Uh, in addition to that, um, you know, what is the uh, spike in energy costs going to mean for uh, for the the quality of their loan books? Because you know, a lot of households and lots of businesses are going to struggle to service their debt, and uh, inflation clearly is. Is the number one concern, I think, for a lot of uh, a lot of banks uh, for, uh, for for this year. Uh, they all, uh, when they reported fourth quarter results, they all guided for a, a cost of risk for this year uh, to be fairly normal, a fairly a fairly you know through the cycle sort of level. Um, but I think with first quarter results, uh, you're going to see a lot of those banks uh, having to to increase their their guidance. Um, so lots, uh, you know, much higher loan losses, I think, than what they had expected at the start of the year. Uh, everyone's not like a banking techie like me, so, um, but maybe you could walk through uh, MDA and non-call risks, and then um, just give us the next step of, you know, wh- where we've seen the most widening, uh, where 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 there might be more to come, and then potentially you know, where there are opportunities and which part of the capital structures uh, you favor the most these days. Yeah, yeah. So um, all layers of European banks' uh, capital liability structure were widening into this uh, uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, After the invasion, uh, that widening continued um, for um, the senior and sub-layers, but senior and sub-bonds have since 
tightened back to pre-invasion levels or sometimes even tighter than that uh, for the junior subs, i.e. the additional tier one bonds. So these are the most junior liabilities that banks have. So that, these are the ones that sit just above shareholders' equity. Uh, they kept uh, widening, um, although they appear to have hit um, a bottom and have started to, 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 uh, to uh, see some strength in recent uh, recent days. Um so, so yeah. So the, it's it's been um, quite divergent the impact uh, of the crisis on uh, on banks' liability structure. Um, now on MDA risk, so MDA stands for maximum distributable amount. Uh, it's a capital buffer. Once that is uh, depleted, banks have to apply restrictions on the amounts that they can pay out in terms of dividends and 81 coupons and also bonuses. So that's clearly, that is the, the capital measure that, uh, that, we, uh, that we tend to track uh, most closely. And um, those MDA buffs had been coming down already in the fourth quarter. Uh, and the view or you know, the expectations of that contraction and capital buffers that, you know, that will continue irrespective of what happens uh, in uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, you know, banks, all, all banks have started to, to, uh, to guide for uh, a normalization of shareholder returns into the you know, form of dividends and, and share buybacks. So those capital buffs were always going to uh, come down uh, this year. And that was well communicated and, and well understood by, by credit investors. Um, Perhaps the Ukraine war will have given uh, some uh, pause for thought. Um, perhaps some of those shareholder return plans will be delayed or slightly slowed down because of the right. increased uncertainty in operating environment. Um, but you know those capital buffers, um, uh, I think, will continue to 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 decline. Um, but it's, so it's only for a few names, uh, either names I just highlighted. Raiffeisen, Sokgen, and, and Unicredit, uh, and maybe one, one or two others, where the, the risk of MDA depletion uh, has been uh, at the forefront of uh, investors' minds. We've published uh, some research highlighting that for Sokgen and Unicredit, that risk really isn't all that material. For Raiffeisen, uh, it's, it's a bit more so, again, because of the, the relative size of the Russian business relative to the, the overall group. Um, so that's clearly something that, that we are focused on. Um, and so, but, but the MDA that relates very much to the to the to the to the coupon of those eighty ones. It does not directly uh, relate to call and call risk, and that's that's another risk that clearly investors are are focused on. Um, what I have to say about that is that uh, call track records have uh, have been very very good actually going into this crisis. Um, you know, it may well be that um, for those names, those three, four names, uh, the non-call risk has gone up somewhat, somewhat um, if they have 81s coming up for call uh, this year. And Raiffeisen has one bond up for call in the fourth quarter. So there, there's some uh, non-call risk, particularly with, with that, that bond. Uh, and it also, of course, depends uh, on the state of the, of the primary markets. You know, are those banks able to, to refinance uh, 81s coming up for call? Gotcha. Gotcha. Listen, I think we can talk forever about this, but uh, for the sake of time, um, we'll move on to Spencer. Thank you so much, Jorin. Um, so Spence, um, listen, uh, from a purely selfish standpoint, uh, I, I go to fill up the gas tank and it costs me 60 or 70 bucks, um, sort of getting a little bit ridiculous. Uh, there's a ton of stuff that you could talk about. 
why don't you just go off and tell me with the price of oil where it is, who's benefiting, uh, and who's getting hurt, and and where does this sort of all end? Sure, Rob. Well, so who's getting hurt is you and me as we fill up our gas tank. Um, yeah, yeah that's been painful. Um, you would think, though, with oil at its highest level in about 10 years, and while it doesn't get the same headlines, natural gas prices are also up at their highest level in about seven years. Um, so you'd think that the independent oil and natural gas producers, the, um, their bonds would be ripping and uh, seeing credit spreads at incredibly tight levels. Um, but you'd be wrong, um, un- un- unfortunately, if you're a bondholder. Um, there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, one is... We're obviously in a rising interest rate environment, so just underlying total returns are are negative. Um, the Bloomberg high yield and uh, investment grade independent energy indices that hit an all time low in terms of yield, sort of mid last year. So you're just kind of swimming upstream um, from that standpoint. But credit spreads also just haven't been performing as one might have thought. We're seeing credit spreads for some of the benchmark issuers. Devon, Marathon, Occidental, well, uh, Oventive, Continental, Apache, for the most part, spreads on their 10-year bonds are wider today than where they were back in October. And back in October, oil is around 85 bucks a barrel. Uh, one, yeah, how is that possible? Well, there's there's a couple of things going on. I'll get to in a, in a second. But one, one potential, one, one sort of outperforming here is Occidental. Uh, they've you know, they've been buying back debt and reducing their or fixing their balance sheet after the uh, fiasco of the uh, the merger back in 2019, which was incredibly ill-timed. So their bond spreads are a little tighter than where they were back in October, but even then, not much. They just did another multi-billion-dollar tender offer. But so what's what's going on? I think is you know there's going to be a major free cash flow windfall for all these companies. Um, at, with commodity prices at this level, but very little to any of that is going to accrue to bondholders. Um, I'm going to use uh, uh, Chesapeake Energy as sort of the, the example here. Um, so they came out of bankruptcy just over a year ago, and um, they're, they're, they have one of the lowest leverage ratios in the in this natural gas sector at one, one time that to EBITDA, and they've committed to keeping that below one times. Um, most of the other producers, whether it's oil or gas, have set long-term targets. I want to get my leverage below two times or one and a half times, somewhere in that neighborhood. And all of them are there now, thanks in large part. Some of it's due to reducing debt, but you know, a lot of it is due to EBITDA numbers are going to, you know, go through the roof these days with with where commodity prices are. So Chesapeake Energy, they're expected to generate something in the neighborhood of two billion dollars of free cash flow this year, which, you know, nobody would ever have even dreamed that that was possible one or two years ago. So it's a huge, huge number. Um, but what they're going to do with that, you know, $1 billion, they, they've committed that they're going to pay out about 50% of their free cash flow every quarter. So of the $2 billion coming in the door, $1 billion is going to go out in the form of dividends. And they've also announced a $1 billion stock buyback program, which isn't going to be fully completed this year, but they do they do think they'll have it done by the end of 2023. So let's say, you know, they do half of it this year of the 2 billion coming in the door, one and a half billion is going out the door back to shareholders and very little of it's going to stay, stick around and, and help support credit profiles or reducing debt. And that's, that's, you're seeing that across the board. Everybody now is talking about paying out 
free cash flow either in the form of a variable dividend, which so you know free cash flow goes up one quarter, you know they're going to say we're going to pay out fifty percent, sixty percent, or in some cases seventy five or eighty percent each quarter, or we're going to we're going to buy back stock with it. One one of the other, I I I sort of get that you know we're seeing uh, Jody put out a note this morning about how corporate buybacks are, are are growing in this environment, but why aren't they just pouring more money back into the business? I mean. If if energy prices are so high, like you would yeah. think you'd, there'd be just more drilling and pumping and pulling gas out of the ground versus shareholder returns. Sure. Well, there there is some of that going on, but certainly not to the extent that you would have would have expected. Um, a lot of that is it goes back over the last nearly ten years, and go back to pre-2015 times, everything was about drill, baby, drill. We're going to grow. We're going to expand. We want to get our production numbers as high as possible. But that was burning capital. And it was, it was generate, it was, it was, it was generating negative free cash flow year on year on year. And then you had the downturn in 2015, 16, the biggest wave of energy sector bankruptcies on record. Companies that survived that then saw another downturn in 2020, saw another wave of bankruptcies. And it's a combination of not just the companies, but investors saying, whoa, you know, we, we want we want to finally see some return on capital here. So we want, quote unquote, capital discipline. Um, so companies are really even with oil at $100, $115 a barrel. They're saying, well, we're just going to we're going to invest enough to keep our production either flat or maybe grow 5% a year. And we're going to generate a ton of free cash flow. And that cash flow is going to go to back to our shareholders. And there was a, they did a survey, the Dallas Fed, you know, they, they do surveys pretty regularly with, with oil and gas companies. And one was, you know, at what price level do you need oil and gas to be in order to really ramp up drilling? And, and a big percentage of the respondents was there is no price. It doesn't matter. I'm focused on generating free cash flow and returning that to my shareholders. So it, 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 it now you are, there are private privately held drillers and producers, you are hearing that they are absolutely taking advantage of this and ramping up their production. And you are seeing rig counts climb and day rates climb. So there is an increase and there is something going on, but it is certainly not to the extent that you would have expected or would have seen in past cycles. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you go from a world, you know, we did this podcast a little less than two years ago where but it's like 70% of the names you're covering are distressed to now it's two years later and they can't give away enough money to investors. So just, you know, what, what are credit investors supposed to do? Like how, how do you play it? Um, what names are you liking? Do you like short, long dated stuff? Like what, what are people supposed to do at least from the credit side? Yeah. So, you know, the, the names, like I said at the beginning, the names that you would have expected to really be performing well and seeing credit spreads tighten, you're not seeing that. And I think a lot of that is because the spreads have gotten as tight as they're about as they're going to get. And like I said, a lot of the, the the windfall here is going out the door to shareholders. So you kind of have to um, reach for yield and sort of sift through the rubble to, to find those those companies that had weaker credit profiles and hope that this this environment, um, you know, put some finally wind in their sails to 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 strengthen their their profile and see their bonds perform. And one the one sector that has continually lagged in this recovery is oil field services and drillers. So companies like 
Transocean and Neighbors and Weatherford, um, you know, if you look at the Bloomberg oil, high yield oil field services sector, the yield on that is about twice what the overall high yield energy market is. And credit spreads are two to three times wider for those companies than a bunch of their other high yield energy peers. So there's still some some potential upside there. Um, you know, some of these companies are still have, I won't say distressed anymore, but you know, stressed credit profiles and some liquidity concerns. But if you take Transocean as an example, um, off, you know, one of the biggest offshore drillers out there, they've got a pretty big backlog. Um, with oil prices at about $60 a barrel, you should see an uptick in offshore drilling projects and demand. Um, not a huge one, but enough to keep, keep the rigs afloat, so to speak. At $80 to $100 a barrel, that should accelerate that that trend, and you should see a nice improvement in rig rates and longer-term contracts. And so, a company like Transocean should benefit from that as long as oil prices stay, you know, if you're north of eighty, they they should really see see a benefit from that. And then I think the other factor that's going to help a company like Transocean is the the Ukraine crisis and the taking all of Russia's oil off the market, you know. I got to think producers out there and countries are sort of thinking about well, what are some of my alternative sources? And yes, the U S could potentially ramp up drilling, but there's, you know, for reasons we've just discussed and other reasons, there's a limited upside there in terms of how much we can produce and how quickly we can produce it. You know, if you want to talk about potentially, you know, projects that could move the needle in terms of global oil production, a lot of that's going to come from offshore drilling. And so, company like Transocean might see some some additional benefit from the, the global look to sort of diversify its supply chain, so to speak, which is obviously going along, going on all over the place. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's amazing the ups and downs of that space. I, I, I wish I would have gotten a, an EV, um, six months ago when I had the opportunity, but um, yeah, it, it is. And it'll be interesting to see if this adherence to capital discipline stays, or if people finally say, you know what, I can't pass up $110 barrel oil. And they, you know, even the public yep. companies start ramping up the drilling, but we'll, we'll see. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Thanks so much. Um, let's move on to Jody and uh, we, listen, we can stick on the theme of me being selfish. I, I booked my first uh, trip, um, post-pandemic and i just was completely shocked at how much um flights cost and how few hotel rooms existed uh, i know you just went to to vegas um for a quote-unquote work conference uh, and said things were uh, were were jammed there um just give us an update on like where the world is maybe it's just the the u.s right now but it, it, are things completely back to normal is the travel and leisure space um, set to, to crush it the, the rest of this year, you know, who's at risk, who isn't, um, you know, give us a, give us a, give us a little bit of an overview of what you're seeing. Sure, Rob. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was pleasantly surprised in March. So just a few weeks ago to see how busy it, Las Vegas was. Um, the reason being is I know in January, a lot of the companies, as, as one of the companies we met with, even described Omicron took the wind out of their sails. You know, they, they were seeing 2022 as the rebirth of conferences and events. And then all of a sudden Omicron happened and 
and large scale conferences were delayed and pushed back and, and what have you, or scaled down or gone virtual. But for as much as Omicron did that, the bounce back was, was actually very, very quick. Now, the problem that's going on with the, with the casino market, with the hotel market, with the restaurant industry, we're seeing this cross theme that, you know, building on the inflation narrative is, is the fact that, um, never mind the fact that input cost inflation higher and, you know, they have to pass it on to consumers, which is what you're feeling. The other piece is the staffing shortage. You know, so they're they're getting some wage inflation element to it, but even throwing money at individuals, they're not necessarily getting the staffing ramp up as quickly as they would like. And particularly in certain markets such as Las Vegas or Atlantic City, where you're pulling from specific types of individuals and not necessarily from that specific area, or there's an there's like a larger demand than there's supply of individuals to work, and so. What you're seeing is things like hotels and casinos are not having your room cleaned every day. That was something that started during the pandemic and it's, it's continued. Marriott actually said on their first quarter or their, their fourth quarter call a few weeks ago, they said that they have been going back to daily room cleans or you know daily or or every other day room cleans in the highest traffic areas and that's where they've they've focused their staffing is is in the areas that are most popular right now the higher luxury areas and it's sort of comical to think that we you know 2 years ago having your room cleaned every day when you stay in a hotel was commonplace but now it's it's something that's a luxury item. And as much as these companies want to meet the demand that's clearly there for people traveling and going and going to conferences and events and, and just going for leisure or business, as we're starting to see, they have to actually turn people away. All the casino, you know, we met with all the major casino companies and, um, and, and they all said to, to me, they said, listen, We'd love to, to have more rooms available, but we can't have too many rooms available if we can't actually accommodate these people. So there are actually, you're saying though, there are empty rooms, they just can't service those rooms. Correct, yes. In certain markets, there are more than enough rooms, but they don't physically have the staff to, be, to accommodate those rooms. Wow. And yeah, and so second half of this year, they're, they're all anticipating that conferences and events will be back to normal and business travel will be on its way back to normal. And, you know, when I, when I said to them, I said, well, what happens if you can't get the staffing? And they said, oh, by then we think it will have worked its way out. It's just more of this short-term sort of stopgap or, or, you know, the short-term kind of cluster that, that's happening. And, and I think the companies are adjusting also their wages to get people back in the door. I mean, if you look up, if you, if you look up on any sort of um, job posting site for a housekeeper job in Atlantic City, for example, the amount that they're offering housekeepers on a hourly wage is significantly higher than it was a, a few years ago. Um, just to get people back in the door. But we're also seeing it on the restaurant side, you know, that a lot of the chains have altered their hours, 
you know, Yum Brands talked about altering its hours at Taco Bell. And I know McDonald's in some of their locations and Starbucks in some of their locations have altered their hours to meet the fact that they don't necessarily have the staff to accommodate these longer hours. And then there's also the piece of it that because we're not fully back to, you know, uh, return to work, they're not seeing the same movement in certain areas of the country as you would. You know, the urban markets, you're not seeing people go in for their cup of coffee every morning necessarily. So things like, you know, with, with Spencer's world of, of, of oil and gas prices going up so much, that's not going to have much of an impact on your world then because it's it's not as if, if every plane was packed or everybody's getting in a car to go on vacation, there's still not spots for them to go to. So is, are, you're not going to see much of an impact from higher energy prices and, and on, on, on travel and leisure and casual dining? Oh, there's, there's plenty of spots for people to still go to and people are still going. You're seeing tremendous demand for travel and you're seeing individuals who are stir crazy and just want to spend but I think that's that's temporary. That's transitory. You know, people have been cooped up for two years and now they want to do their big hurrah vacation. I have friends who whose daughters were on spring break this week and they were hemming and hawing about going down to Orlando to go to Disney with them. And they ultimately decided, you know, last minute sometime end of last week, you know, what, we'll just go. And so they booked tickets. They um, they're staying at one of the nice big hotels near the parks and they were scrambling to get tickets. They were able to get tickets to some of the parks there. Um, but they, they, you know, just sort of booked it last minute and they said, we don't care how much it actually costs. We just physically want to be somewhere else, somewhere warm, somewhere different. We're tired of being in the same place. And I think you're seeing that a lot. Now that said, with energy prices where they are, with food prices where they are, with the fact that companies are dealing with these wage and input cost inflation pressures by passing on a lot of the cost to the consumer, you might get to a point where the consumer's extra money that they have in their piggy bank because they haven't been spending all of a sudden doesn't go as far. And so one, one thing that, you know, we sort of wonder, and we were talking about this when we, we were looking at the theme parks over the past couple of weeks, you know, in, in updating our, our review of the theme parks, is if these regional theme parks that have benefited from the fact that they're so close to these different areas, different pockets, and that people don't necessarily want to get on a plane and fly really far away. Um, if the competitive advantage they have of these day trips lessens partially because people don't want to get in the car and spend so much money to drive somewhere because energy prices are just so expensive. But then, you know, what's even more interesting is, is how companies are all using the pricing game and looking at the elasticity of demand as a way to sort of reach this equilibrium to pass on costs as much cost as they can to the consumer. Well, listen, uh, um, we went to a, a fast casual uh, organic burger joint yesterday and the kids ordered $16 hamburgers. And um, <laughs> I'll tell you, I don't know what they cost two years ago, um, but it, it reminded me of Pulp Fiction. It was like, I wanted to see what a $5 shake tastes like. I mean, I'm not so <laughs> sure there's a $16 mass casual. And people people like us are, are, are paying for it. So with the, the quarter coming to an end and, you know, earnings starting to come up, maybe you can just quickly walk through. Who do you, who do you just think is going to post some of the, the biggest, best numbers, the worst numbers out there? Who to, who to avoid? Who to who, who maybe add some exposure to? 
So I would say that the first quarter for all the companies is going to be the same narrative, that January was particularly rough. They weren't expecting Omicron to have the, having the effect it had. But that come February and March, we saw much of a bounce back. You might hear from some of the more international names like the McDonald's and the Yum brands who have a presence in Russia or had a presence in Russia, I should say, as well as the major hotels, the Marriott, the Hilton, the Hyatt. You might hear them comment on what they've done to move out of that region, either temporarily or permanently, and the cost that they're incurring from that. Now, what's interesting is for as much as these companies do have exposure to that region, um, Yum, for example, which was getting a lot of volatility when, when the Russia war broke out, they, they, it's like 2% of their business is, is actually Russia, which is substantial, don't get me wrong, but, but it's, less, it's less large than people, I think, anticipated. Um, that said, I think that there is going to be a lot of commentary around that. There's going to be a lot of commentary around inflation. There's going to be a lot of commentary around the COVID lag for as much as we're seeing people sort of put COVID as something that they just have to deal with in their everyday life these companies in the leisure lodging gaming restaurant space are still going to be feeling it. Um, now I will say that, that the rental car companies are still going to be benefiting, you know, their cash flows are still probably going to be pretty strong, although they might be commenting on the fact that energy prices are affecting them. So it'll be interesting to see particularly Hertz now that they are rolling out on, on all the Teslas they have and, and what that means for their business versus Avis that hasn't really done that just yet. Um, but for the companies that are going to do better over others, um, I think we might see glimmers of hope for, two, for the second quarter. And that a lot of what the companies are going to be communicating is that second quarter and third quarter are going to be strong. But that first quarter was a little bit of a hiccup. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, we didn't even have a chance to talk much about cruise ships. My in-laws are on a cruise <laughs> right now. And you know, you've talked a lot about uh, about revenge shopping. And I'll tell you, they're more than willing to take any health risks to stand mm-hmm. on an all-you-can-eat sure. uh, buffet breakfast line. And, um, you know, it certainly just seems like a lot of people are lined up for that. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out with even greater costs. But we'll probably talk that in a, about that again in another month or two. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So why don't we wind this up with Mike Holland? Um, what I love about Mike, he's uh, was a Division One superstar athlete, and he always heads to where the puck is going, not where not where it's been. So he can give us a, a future look more so than others. Michael, thank you for joining us. Um, how are you? I'm good, Rob. Thank you for that uh, tremendous introduction. I appreciate that. Uh, I I. <laughs> I know I stole it from you, so sorry about that. Um, so listen, healthcare. I, there's I, there's just so many things to talk about in, in healthcare and pandemic related. You know, one of one of the things I think I've seen a lot um, in your space, and you you have crushed it the last month or so, uh, has been on healthcare M and A and IPOs. Like before, we just get into like who's benefiting or not benefiting from are we in still in a pandemic are we coming out of a pandemic like talk to me just a little bit what what's going on there's another big deal on the tape today like what's happening why is m a picking up so much are we going to see a lot more of it um take take a look into your your crystal ball first and 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 look take a little bit backwards look and a little forwards look for us 
Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it makes sense to start out and, you know, it, contextually, you know, with what's going on across, across the globe and, uh, you know, looking at COVID impacts and looking at the war, uh, you know, it's healthcare is generally pretty well um, protected from uh, global pressures, right? It's a domestic, you know, market that we look at, you know, away from pharma and, you know, to an extent, healthcare was always considered consumer non-discretionary, right? So demand for healthcare usually is pretty stable. I think over the last 10 years, as high deductible health plans have picked up, um, you know, concerns around uh, recessionary environments impacting healthcare has grown, but, but still, it's a, it's a largely recession-resilient re- domestic space that is generally protected from um, global sure. events, global events, right? But uh, that being said, the idiosyncratic risks are, are certainly uh, plentiful uh, in some of our high-yield names that we look at. And, you know, I, I think the other, you know, um, other thing to say is that healthcare, you know, the one constant in healthcare is that in the U.S. is, is it's, it's, it's change, right? It's legislative change, it's changes to reimbursements and, you know, trying to figure out where the government is going to incentivize providers and payers to play uh, is the way to sort of skate to where the puck is going, as he said. Um, and so if we look back, uh, you know, last year we had two, two big deals with Medline, um, and Athena Health, you know, healthcare IT has been pretty, uh, pretty hot right now. We had a lot of people focusing on value-based care, which was sort of a way for insurance companies to manage down costs with the highest risk members of plans, of health plans. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of SPAC, uh, SPAC activity in that space that, uh, frankly, uh, you're seeing a lot of pressure uh, in some of these names today, in fact, but uh, uh, de- deal flow remains high. And, you know, just as you mentioned today, United Health is on the tape today um, with a bid for LHC Group, which is this, you know, home health based company. Uh, you know, they're looking at paying $6 billion for, for the business, which is a pretty hefty multiple. It's 20 times multiple. And, you know, home health has always been a pretty uh, it's always commanded a pretty elevated multiple, even though it's, got, it's a low margin business, because uh, that's where investors always thought the puck was going uh, in terms of uh, reimbursements and, and increased coverage in the, in the home. And, and to see United come out and, and make that acquisition, it, it's pretty interesting. One, because United is a payer that has been increasingly buying up providers for the past decade and bulking up its opt-in business. Um, but also it, it's key right now as well, because United was looking at buying and trying to buy Change Healthcare, which was a which is a healthcare analytics company. But that deal has been subjected to any competitive concerns, and the DOJ is sued to uh, prevent that from occurring. It's not off the table by any means, but definitely interesting today to see United pivot and uh, offer six billion dollars or that twenty times multiple for LHC Group. Um, so, you know, there's also several, I mean, you know, we've been looking a lot at Bausch Health as well, that, you know, Bausch is the former Valiant, uh, formerly known as Valiant, had done a, a slew of deals in the uh, mid, mid, mid to late last decade, uh, buying up Salix and buying up Bausch and Loam. And uh, that's been a focus of investors lately is, 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 is Bausch Health going to be able to IPO Bausch and Loam and pay down some debt? Um, so a lot to look at, certainly, in the space today. You know, uh- during during the middle of the pandemic, you had talked a lot about a lot of the names that you covered were suffering because people had to put off uh, elective surgeries 
Um, has that has that completely changed? Have those have have has the dynamics normalized? Have those names bounced back? Are there are there opportunities for investment in in, in those places? Or yeah, are we still I, I, somewhat in that. I think we've seen that come back. Sorry to interrupt. I, I think we've seen surgeries, uh, elective surgeries come back nearly to 100% of where they were pre-COVID. Tenant healthcare is a big high-yield issuer, and they put out some pretty pretty good numbers in terms of, you know, surgical uh, visits and, um, you know, the, the data they show shows we're, you know, high 90% back to levels pre-pandemic. So we think that that's, you know, basically come back. And, and I think where you look at uh, investment happening, tenant's a good example of that. Tenant, you know, is historically a really a, acute care hospital company, but they have positioned themselves to generate roughly 50% of revenue from outpatient surgeries. So they've been buying up surgical centers, um, you know, competing with United Health and some other players in the space at buying these surgical centers um, because the elective surgeries that were being deferred, uh, a lot of that was hospitals. You know, hospitals were, were filled up and you didn't have ICU beds, you didn't have room and, you know, surgeries that were going to be done in the hospital were, uh, were deferred. Uh, and the outpatient where it's a smaller f- facility, you know, um, it's very uh, scheduled in terms of going in and out. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I had a quick outpatient surgery done a couple of months ago and it was to, to say it was easy. It was uh, an understatement. You know, I went in, sat there for a half hour. Uh, they put me under. I came out an hour later and walked home. Um, surgical um, techn- advancements in surgical technology are pretty amazing. And so, you know, you're seeing you're seeing the deferrals decline uh, while these hospital companies increasingly invest um, outside of the typical acute care plant, you know, go into the outpatient surgical centers, which are lower cost and higher margin. Gotcha. You also, you know, you cover a a bunch of of funky, hard to understand, high yield names, um, some of which have had pretty lofty yields. Um, Does that still exist? I mean, do you still have names that are, are trading, um, you know, double-digit yields, and um, if if not, do you think you're we're going to get back to that point or no? So the you know, looking at sort of the 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 stressed high yield universe in healthcare, uh, there there are certainly a lot of names, and it's like those idiosyncratic risk I was talking to you about earlier. Um, you know, Endopharma is is yielding, you know, it's got six percent notes due twenty twenty eight. You know, you know yielding 18%, but that, that company is exposed to opioid litigation. Uh, Envision Healthcare, another unsecured note due 2026, yielding uh, off the charts, basically the bonds are trading uh, below 50. And that's uh, an over-levered business that had, you know, uh, that's a physician, physician practice management group that's been under pressure since they were taken private by KKR. But I think what's more interesting is if you look at Bausch Health, which is um, looking at doing the IPO of Bausch and Loam and uh, basically unlocking the value embedded in the CPG like contact business, which is Bausch and Loam. Uh, you know, the, the bonds of Bausch's curve, if you go out past uh, five, six years, are trading uh, to stress levels around 80, like high 70 cents in the dollar, low 80 cents in the dollar range. So basically around 10%. Um, so there is some yield there. Now, you know, it, it, I think a lot of investors are a little concerned about. Uh, drug patent expiries and revenue durability, and not to mention, uh, you know, litigation risk and 
there's a lot of risks embedded in, in those bonds, and that's why they're trading where they are. But, you know, there's certainly some complex stories here that we could get into at another time that uh, are, are yielding, uh, you know, above 10%. But I, I think, broadly speaking, the longer end of the healthcare curve is is getting heavier and heavier. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool stuff. Listen, uh, this is an awesome dialogue. Um, you know, luckily in our office, we get to talk a lot of, about this stuff every single day. But I think for clients out there, just hearing this level of expertise, I mean, I I just think it puts in perspective how powerful the, the BI team is. Um, so thank you, all of you, for for, uh, for participating on today's call. Thank you to everyone for, for listening once again to our monthly BI Credit Chat podcast. As always, if you need anything from our team, just just reach out directly, email, IB, message, uh, even pick up the phone. Our phones actually work. Um, or you could just go to the credit research dashboard, which is BI cred, C-R-E-D. So please stay happy and healthy. Until next month, may your longs be tighter and your shorts wider. Bye-bye.